I speak on a lot of panels about business and social purpose and impact. And really, we do divide into two, two big buckets. One, there's a group of people who've been purpose or born purpose or have had a conscience, a sense of doing good almost since they were little kids. And then others who had some kind of epiphany. And I'm definitely in the second group. You know, really, I didn't care about anybody or anything else other than myself and my life and doing my thing until I was in China. China made the difference to me. You know, anybody who's lived in China for any period of time gets sort of rearranged. Our molecules get rearranged in a really profound way because you can't live um, with any of your old ways of thinking in such a different environment. You know, the speed, the history, everything is so different. But the thing that really hit me in China was the sped up notion of the destruction of the planet. Born in South Africa, in the age of apartheid, her education, parental guidance, curiosity, and worldly ambitions set her on her path to a stellar career in international business and marketing, and finally leading Danone to become the first billion-dollar entity to become a public benefit corporation. Welcome this week's guest, Lorna Davis. Lorna Davis is a transformative thinker, leader, and visionary for why and how organizations can combine social and environmental priorities with their financial imperatives to deliver improved business performance. As a highly respected coach and international speaker, Lorna also serves on a number of boards, helping them embrace meaning and purpose. In part one of this two-parter, we cover Lorna's early life in South Africa, her parents' influence, and how her education and her Pollyanna-ish optimistic view of the world helped her carve a successful career. We discuss Lorna's social purpose epiphany when working in China in 2006. Lorna explains how she left China changed and ultimately returned to Danone with a mission to help them become a purpose-driven company. Lorna recounts the practical realities of Danone's evolution to a B Corp under her leadership in the US as chief manifesto catalyst. We also discuss how Lorna became an evangelist for the B Corp movement, the tools available for all businesses, and her advisory role with organizations on their sustainability strategies. I hope you're inspired by the leadership values and vision of Lorna Davis. Lorna, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you, Mark. Good to be here. It's lovely to see you in Neuhaus. And I have to give a little um, shout out to a couple of people. One, Perfecto Sanchez who I believe you used to work with back in the day, said, oh, I'm sure she'll remember me. Oh, wow. That is a long time. A long time ago. So yeah, yeah I was in a meeting with him on Friday, oh, that's funny. launching his new employee impact platform called Journey One, which oh. is really cool, all tied to the SDGs. Oh, cool. So check it out. I will. And also a big shout out and thank you to our friend, uh, Joshua Spodek, for recommending that we interview you next. So thanks, Joshua. Before we get into your extensive career an impressive career in business. And is it fair to say social purpose? Would that be a good way to encompass the journey you've been on? Maybe social impact. Social purpose, impact and purpose. Yeah. yeah. Something okay. Like that. Well, before we get into that sort of that journey in your life in business and social impact, we always like to talk to our guests about their upbringing and the impact of where they grew up, the impact of their parents and peers and mentors. So uh, I believe you grew up, you were born and grew up in Durban in South Africa. I haven't been able to find out what your parents did, but that was. Um, Probably about the same time I grew up in the 1960s. I was in Scotland and you were in, in South Africa when the nationalist, the National Party and deep in uh, apartheid times. That must have had quite an impact on you. Well, I think it did. I mean, I, it's, it's always difficult to know how these things influence us, but there's no doubt that 
um, growing up in as a as a white person in in apartheid South Africa meant a few things. First of all, I had an, an enormous amount of privilege just by virtue of the fact that I was white, I had a great education, and and I had a safe, free, beautiful kind of environment to grow up in, unlike obviously many, many millions of people who I was living alongside and didn't really know that I was living alongside in a sense, you know, because that was the success of apartheid was it managed to separate us from each other in a way that really didn't become apparent until later. And I think the most important impact for me on growing up in South Africa was the isolation. We had no television until I graduated from high school, which is kind of shocking for people to imagine. Was that deliberate? There was no television in the country. There just wasn't. Yeah, it just didn't exist. And so we were, and there was an enormous amount of um, uh, censorship. Uh, You weren't allowed to discuss many things that that I think were important to discuss. Everything from Marxism to pornography was kind of against the rules. That was common common discussion at our dinner table every night. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest. I mean, uh, uh, Marxism. (laughs) And pornography, I'm sure, a lot in Scotland. Yeah, Trotsky, (laughs) Marx, Lenin. Um, and if you mentioned Dostoevsky, you would be banished. <laughs> so oh, that's funny. <laughs> the whole question of how other people grew up is, you know, it's a mystery to me. But anyway, um, and I think, you know, in my early 20s, it became clear to me that it was a deeply shameful thing to be a white South African. I was really embarrassed. And my first overseas trip I did uh, for my 21st birthday pre- present, I asked to go overseas. And, and I, you know, every everyone I spoke to in the youth hostels that I stayed in just just hated us. And it was uh, embarrassing and awkward. And I think it's fair to say that I was pretty quick to get out. Okay, where was that, that first trip? Oh, that first trip in, in when I was 21 was just one of those classic trips around Europe. You know, you get a Eurail pass, you stay in youth hostels and you kind of explore things. But I left um, as a backpacker where I sold everything and left in my mid-20s and pretty much never went back. I mean, I go back a lot, but I never lived there again. Yeah, were you aware of the, I mean, not wanting to dive right into uh, apartheid, but I might as well just ask it here. When you were traveling, were you aware of the anti-apartheid movement? It was I was certainly, it was all around me in the UK with bands like Simple Minds being part of it, the concerts for freedom to free Nelson Mandela. Presumably you were sheltered from that inside South Africa. Not really. I mean, I, when I was at university, I was at a I was at a very progressive university. I was as a Cape Town university, and um, you know, I remember marching a uh, Lions Go Home march, which I have to say was the extent of my enthusiastic protest. You know, was I was the way Lions. Too, yeah, the British yeah, the Lions, the, the yeah. rugby team. I was way too privileged and self-important to do anything more interesting than just you know walk in the streets with a big placard. But no, we were really aware of how hated we were. I mean, Mandela called us the skunk of the of the world and we we felt it. Okay. Well, we've jumped ahead a little bit. So let's go back to your parental support. Um, tell me about your parents and the guidance they give you and the direction and the impact on your journey. I never know why this is an interesting question. And so I'm sure there are people who would say that that must be because I've got some sort of deep, dark secret, but I don't really. So my dad was a builder and we moved around the country with whatever job he was doing. So in fact, we lived in Namibia, what is now Namibia, which was mm-hmm. then Southwest Africa, when he was building an army base and we moved to Johannesburg when he built the airport and then back to Durban. So we were uh, kind of driven by that. And my dad had uh, fought in the war 
uh, the Second World War for those people who think that there was, you know, the war was a long time ago, but my dad fought in the Second World War. From, from 17 to 23, he was in the war, which I can't imagine what that kind of upbringing must have been like. And my, my, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I was one of two of a second batch of children she had. She'd been married before and had two other children, which was kind of unusual in those days. You're the youngest? I'm the youngest, yeah. yeah. Uh, youngest of four girls. Yeah. I guess I had, you know, I grew up in the way that many people of my generation did. Dad worked long hours, didn't come home until seven. And by which time we were sort of, you know, I guess bathed and put in pajamas and sort of had to be good kids for dad. And I had a pretty, I mean, I think I had a powerful and useful education in many ways, even though it was Christian national education. So I probably didn't get, as we've discussed, the most interesting perspective on political issues, but I got uh, other really great benefits. And a lot of our of our upbringing was very outdoors. I mean, South Africa is a very outdoorsy kind of a place. So we spent a lot of our time outside in the garden doing the kind of things that kids do. What sort of child were you? Were you um, a playful, curious child or always in the outdoors? Or were you a reader or, or do you, were you a good combination? Well, my mother's 97, still alive, going strong. And I think if you'd ask her, she would say, I was terrifying child, apparently. <laughs> I was um, <laughs> terrifying to who? To her, probably. Oh. I was willful and uh, I guess very curious. I don't think I was easy as a younger child. Um, by the time I got to high school, I had worked out how the system worked, and the system worked best if you were, uh, you know, dedicated, behaved yourself well, and got good results. So I was I was settled down, I guess, as as a high school kid, but I was definitely a challenging youngster. I think. Isn't that quite unusual for the youngest child to be like that? Usually they're the quieter ones and overshadowed by the older kids. I don't know. I mean, I hear other people say that younger children get away with anything, right? Because yeah. they're, um, you, you know, they're, advantage. They're, yeah, I yeah. think there was a bit of that, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you had the freedom to explore. You're very playful in a safe environment. Are there any other sort of defining early memories or influences that you look back on that defined your upbringing? And that defined you? I remember, you know, my parents were enthusiastic travelers in a, in a way that it was unusual for those days. They used to, I remember they went to the Far East, which was, <laughs> which was a big deal. You know, they went to Japan and they went to Venice and Le- places and left like you that. Behind. Left us behind, but came back with lots of, um, you know, lots of stories and lots of things, presence, yes. And I got a perspective of a much bigger world. Oh, always. And I remember thinking early on. I want a piece of that. I want a piece yeah. of that. Quite and right too. They should have taken you. Yeah, what yeah. What was going on there? Well, yeah, I can think of the, nothing worse than taking me on a trip like this. And I remember, I remember having a feeling that the, that the country was just going to squash me if I stayed. E- even early on, I remember that feeling. Like if you, I, I don't know, I don't know what I said about what I wanted to be as a grown up, but I, I remember feeling I'm going to go and get a piece of that world. I've started asking a question to people about, did they live with abundance or scarcity? How did it feel? Because it must have been a very abundant, plentiful world that you were living in this this bubble. But equally, as you said, you were, you were the outside world was distant. It's an interesting question because I, I have a f- strong sense of abundance now. I have a and I think I always did. I, I had a sense that the world was rich and fertile and 
that I could have I could have anything that I wanted in that context. I think it's probably more complicated than that. Uh, and I think I think there are probably layers of that. But I, I am kind of Pollyanna-ish in lots of ways. I have a sort of sense that the world is a magnificent place. And, it, you know, I think that, is it Desiderata that says with oh, all yeah. its sham, mm-hmm. drudgery and broken dreams, it's still a beautiful world, you know, strive to be it's happy. Point. Yeah. And I, I do have that sense. And, and, you know, given the work that I'm in right now, I, I have a lot of people who are very depressed and sad and confused. And I find it difficult to relate to that, really. Yeah, well, I'm going to come and talk to you about optimism. So let's just quickly cover education. What was school like for the young Lorna? You you attended a, a school called Norland's Girls' School, I believe, at the time. What were the teachers or what mentors were there that impacted your, your life and the direction you took? I think high school was really important to me. I, I went to an all-girls school. It was pretty common, almost all of the government schools. This was not a private school. This was a government school. Pretty much all of them were single sex in South Africa. And it suited me well. I was a, you know, I was an enthusiastic sports, you know, I played tennis and swam and stuff like that. And I had a series of sort of disciplined teachers called, you know, Miss Guttridge and, you know, Miss Benson and stuff like that, who sent a message that I think I got very early on that I had an enormous amount of energy and and I was a turbulent child in many ways, but that discipline and um, settling myself down and applying myself was going to serve me. And I got that message really early on and I did it. I mean, I remember early on my mother walking into my room. Those were the days where mothers didn't even know what you were studying at school, let alone like doing your homework for you, for you which is kind of how it seems to work these days. But I had put um, a timetable on my on the wall in front of my desk to sort of work out how I was going to study for the exams. And I had, you know, drawn the lines and worked out exactly what percentage of time I needed for this. And I would set my alarm and I would get up at this time and I would do this and do that and do the other thing. And I think I, I learned that routine and discipline and order were going to stabilize me um, and settle me down. And, and it worked and it's worked for a lot of my life. Now I'm much more free-spirited because uh, I don't need to scare myself into action anymore like I used to. But um, that's what I learned from school. And, and that was the way of school in those days, man. I mean, you would just, discipline was the order of the day. Yeah, I wish I'd learned that lesson early on. <laughs> I, have to say, I, I just seem to continue to reject it. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose I caught up eventually. But yeah, I certainly didn't think about that at school. I was just... Uh, <laughs> perpetual sort of uh, rebel. You attended University of Cape Town and studied psychology. Why? Why psychology? I mean, you said you didn't. Um, you didn't really have a vision of what you where your no. life was going to go, but you knew you wanted to be out of South Africa because mm. you didn't want to feel constrained or s- strangled or the way you described it. Was there some grand plan with psychology? No, I've never had a grand plan of any kind, and and I know that. You know, lots of young people ask that question and I, there are a few people who have a grand plan, but most people don't. It's interesting for me now to know that I studied psychology and anthropology because they have always been my great loves. I'm fascinated by humans and how they think and, and why they do what they do. And I think I I went to university just because I was fascinated by that. I was the first person in my family to get a degree. So it was kind of a big deal to just get a degree in anything. And I didn't know what I was going to do afterwards. I remember hearing there was this thing called personnel, 
which, you know, now they call human resources. And I thought maybe I would do something like that. But then randomly, randomly, I was on a, um, a committee that was raising funds for charity and I was uh, in charge of the entertainment department, which meant basically that I used to get rock bands to come and play at the campus and I used to get the money and then give it to this charity. And in order to do that, of course, you had to put posters up around campus and you had to like, you know, buy spots on the student radio and stuff. And so I was, uh, I went down to see what was happening in careers week. And there was this door that said Unilever marketing. And I said to somebody next to me, what is marketing? And she said to me, Oh, you know that thing you do for for the for the entertainment portfolio. You know how you put up those signs and you and you get ads on the radio. That's marketing. So I thought, oh, I know what that is. Then and I pushed open the door, you know, and I said, I'm here to talk about marketing. And they said, well, what's your, you know, what's your qualification? And I said, oh, I've got a degree in I got a bachelor of social science, which is like the lowest of the low bachelor of social science in psychology and anthropology. They said, hmm, you're our first business student, non-business student to walk through the door. Okay. Long story short, I got a job working at Unilever in the marketing department. But it is interesting that today <laughs> anyone walking into a marketing job with psychology would be seen as a massive plus and desirable. Yes, one would think so. One would hope so. Although I think people still want business degrees. And bizarrely, I'm just, I'm 60 years old and I have zero business qualifications. Nothing. Not even a diploma. Nothing. I'm not sure you'd get a job these days with that. Although I would argue that it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. to, I mean, I have many, I have hired many, many, many highly educated young people over the years as you, as you, I'm sure you have. And I've spent as much time untraining them as they spent being trained at university. There's, um, it's made me think, I, I was going to talk to you, drop in something about Buckminster Fuller. I think um, he had a, a quote, one of his quote, many great quotes was, um, everyone is born a genius, um, but the process of living degeniusism. And I think that's quite interesting when you think about the people going off and doing business degrees, particularly MBAs. I wonder if, whether it's genius, creativity and curiosity, it, it's quelled to ensure people follow a model and a methodology, which became, we all become just colourless automatons. Yes. So I, I'm with you on the fact that hiring people that necessarily don't have the qualifications can be a good thing if you hire for the right reasons. But um, well, let's, let's go back. So you, you, you transitioned to Unilever. You've had quite, quite a fascinating career trajectory because you went from there to P&G. You've worked with some of the most interesting and um, respectful, iconic brands from Danone to Mondelez to Kraft. You're on the board of Electrolux and on the board of Seventh Generation. When did social purpose and social impact first become part of your consciousness as a leader? So it's interesting. I, I speak on a lot of panels about business and uh, and social purpose and impact. And really, we do divide into two into two big buckets. One, there's a group of people who've been purpose or born purpose or have had a conscience, a sense of doing good almost since they were little kids. And then others who had some kind of epiphany. And I'm definitely in the second group. I'm in the, you know, really, I didn't care about anybody or anything else other than myself and my life and doing my thing until really I was in China. China made the difference to me. And what was that, late 2000s? Yeah, I went to China 2006 Six, right. and I left in 2012. So just round about the middle of the time in my time in China. So that was Shanghai? Shanghai, yes. 
And, you know, anybody who's lived in China for any period of time gets sort of rearranged. Our molecules molecules get rearranged in a really profound way because you can't live with any of your old ways of thinking in such a different environment. You know, the speed, the history, everything is so different. But the thing that really hit me in China was the sort of sped up notion of the destruction of the planet, basically. It's, it's like in our world, it's been happening slowly. And so we've got used to it. There, I mean, literally, I would go to a restaurant one night and then three months later, I would go to go to the same restaurant. And not only was the restaurant not there, neither was the road there. You know, another whole road had been built. So everything sort of moved so fast that you could sort of see the hyperspeed. And then the human rights challenges and the animal rights challenges, I mean, seeing a pig being kind of, you know, carried on the back of a motorcycle shocked me. And then, you know, really... A live pig. Yeah, a live pig. Yeah, sure. And hearing and living many incredible human rights abuses, you know, right down to uh, knowing that uh, if I gave the people in my company medical you know, tests, uh, that they wouldn't be confidential from the government. And if there was uh, somebody in my team that had HIV, that it it would, you know, people would find out and there would be, uh, there would be consequences. All of these things kind of came together in a way that I couldn't avoid anymore. And so I was changed and shaken and I was doing my own thing. I mean, I was doing the, the right, I'm a little um, frivolous when I say that I didn't care. I mean, if, if you spoke to people who I worked with in those days, you would say that I, I had, I had a conscience in my own way. And I would, I like to think I was a good leader, but I wasn't an activist. I left China changed and came to live in the US for the first time. And of course, people said to me, oh, yay, you're going from an emerging market to, you know, the great United States of America, and it'll all be different. And I came to the US and it was, you know, I've moved internationally 12 times. My move to the US was the hardest by far because I saw a couple of things that I hadn't seen before. First of all, I saw that this is what the Chinese people wanted, not unreasonably, they're aspiring. But if you just do the maths or the math, as they say in America, of how many Americans, how many Chinese people, you just see, you know, what we're living through today in terms of the use of the resources of the planet. But I also saw that the U.S. didn't have it right either. Um, I think I was kind of hoping that the U.S. had a kind of recipe for for a better way. What did you define determine as being uh, deficient in the U.S.? I think the thing that shocked me, I don't call it deficient. Um, or wrong. <laughs> uh, no, I don't even call it wrong. I just call it really different. So bear in mind that I had worked for a French company for most of my most of my serious adult life, Denon, uh, and I had lived in China for six years. Both of those societies are very collectivist in their in their way. There's a sense of the group. There's a sense of uh, working together, and there's a sense of trust and respect of the group. And certainly the French and the Chinese express that very differently, but that's very real. The US is very individualistic in its style. And the rhetoric and the narrative is about individuals doing what they want to do. And actually there's very little trust of the group. And in fact, one of the greatest sadnesses of my life, my business life, is that the US has not paid the sustainable development goals the respect that I think that they deserve. Because when I look at the future, 
the fact that the SDGs are the best shot we've got at uh, a kind of a global view of what we're trying to do as a species. And everybody else in the world has picked up on that. And the US has sort of pretty much ignored it because it comes from the UN and the UN is, you know, in, in, in most Americans' eyes, not to be trusted. So I had seen that, I saw that when I first came to the US and I was stunned by that. And then I couldn't hold all of the internal paradoxes anymore. I couldn't hold my own personal trajectory, my own attempt to be a global citizen, which was a nice way of saying that I kind of stayed away from all of the icky stuff that it is to be part of a society. You know, the fact that I've moved internationally so many times, it's been exciting because I've had so many different experiences, but it's also allowed me to stay separate and, and kind of look through the window uh, of societies and look through the window of countries. And every time there was something I didn't like, I would say to myself, oh, well, I'll be leaving anyway. When my assignment's up, I'll be sent off to the next place. And that, there's a cop out in that. I didn't actually own my responsibility to make a difference. So there was something in the coming into the, the US that just brought that all crumbling down, if you like. And I was um, the president of Nabisco at the time, which is a $6 billion business. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't sell Oreos and feel happy anymore. There's nothing wrong with Oreo's terrific product and, and they were really good to me, but it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. I couldn't do it anymore. So that was kind of my moment that brought me to my knees, I guess, when everything changed. But rather than walk away from corporate life, you transitioned yeah. to another company and then set on a path to reorganize from within. And be an is it fair to say to become an activist from within? Yes, yes. So I certainly when I when I went through a phase of escape fantasy, like and get the hell out of this, you know, I, everything from I think I'll start my own cookie shop to um, uh, I decided I was going to work for not for profit, and then I saw that not for profits were kind of weird things too. And, and the not-for-profit that I was about to sign with, when I asked them exactly what I was going to be doing with my time, I was going to be spending half my time in Silicon Valley raising money from big, rich people who arguably have made their money not caring much. And then the other half of my time in Africa, giving it to people who needed it, the whole system didn't seem like it made sense to me. Um, and so I was... Anna Giordardis, we agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, Anand, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, Anand, I mean, Anand is, his book is one of the most interesting uh, books that I've read recently, and not recently. And he, I mean, I told him I, it, I needed to take a lie down in between each chapter because he, he really rocked my world in a good way. Yeah, no, it's a great book. If people haven't read it, it's called Winners, Winners Take All. And it's definitely worth a read. And his surname is Giridaridis, I think, yeah, uh, or Giridaridis, yeah, depends yeah. on how you want to say it. I know. But, yeah. but just look up Anna and on Twitter and you'll find him. Yeah, so I, I was, it was at that point that I realized, oh, there needs to be a smarter way for me to bring together what I know with what I don't know. And that's when, uh, in fact, Emmanuel Faber, who's the CEO of Danone, asked me to come back to Danone. And I moved back to Paris. And that was really the beginning of this phase of that journey. So... What, I mean, I'm, ju I'm jumping around a little bit here, but what was it that then uh, led you to become aware of the, the B Corp movement ah. and take out that B Corp certification or B Lab is, isn't it? That so B Lab's the, the not-for-profit that yeah. does the certification, B Corp's the certification. So I'll tell you a little bit. And by the way, don't worry about jumping around. I just think sort of, you know, going chronologically no, 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 is a bit boring. No, it's fine. So I went back to Paris and the, my mission 
was to help Danone to move to the next phase of the purpose journey. And um, we had written a manifesto. They had written a manifesto, uh, a small group of people about what Danone was trying to be in the world. And, and you know, other companies would would have a vision or a mission or something. Danone, being a French company, would have a manifesto that's kind of consistent with the French way of doing things, a little bit longer, a little mm. bit more sophisticated, more complex perhaps. And I was interested in a couple of things. The first was, how could we get this to be owned by the whole company? And so one part of the journey was we launched that to all 100,000 people in a webcast in 2015 and then invited people's input and launched a V2 of that manifesto a year later. And that whole process of engaging people in the organization organization and co-creating with the future uh, was a very important part of the journey. But separately, we were trying to find metrics because all of these good words is fine, but organizations are KPI achieving systems. That's what they do. Uh, organizations want to get their teeth into something that they can measure. And if, if you like, this is a game that needs a scorecard. And just as you know, capital markets today have a financial scorecard, and that scorecard has developed over the years. I mean, it used to be pretty simple, and then we laddered up. I remember when return on invested capital was kind of a new idea to be measuring as an ongoing thing in a company. So those metrics, financial metrics, have emerged, but or have evolved. But the rules of that game are pretty simple. Now we were trying to create a set of rules for the other part of that game, which is the use of the resources of the planet and both both physical resources of the planet and the humans of the planet. And I had heard about the B Corp movement. Uh, I'd read about it in the New Yorker or something. And we were watching to see whether there was really a there there because there, there had been a lot of attempts at this kind of stuff over the years. But the value judgments that are required in this kind of measurement system are not for the faint-hearted. And so many people who tried to come up with these kind of judgments had sort of fallen by the wayside. And the whole idea of organizations systematically measuring things other than, the, than what they were required to do by law was kind of a new idea, even, you know, five years ago in a way. But we were very excited by B Corp. So we decided to sign a deal with them to take 10 of our business units through B Corp certification to see what it was really like in real life. And, and I think this is an important um, principle of mine really is I'm not really interested in talking about these things philosophically. I'm very interested in doing them, seeing how how they work and then trying to build on them. Because they have a threshold, don't they? Just for yeah, people yeah. that aren't aware of it. I think, it's, is it 150? Is you the have to be, there have to be 80, 80 out of 200. Out of 200, yeah. right, okay. Yeah, and for anybody who's listening who wants to go, just go on the bcorporation.net website and you'll see there's a B impact assessment or business impact assessment, which is free and you can go through it for your own company and see the kinds of questions that they ask. And the questions themselves are genius. I mean, really smart. They change, they update every couple of years, but they're very, very thought-provoking questions. But we wanted to see how it would work in real life because this, you know, Danone's a you know, $25 billion business, 25 billion euro business, and it um, has 100,000 people. You can't mess about with this kind of stuff. So it was important to see how it worked in real life. So we did Danone Spain first. And the reason we did Danone Spain was a few things. First of all, it's a significant business, a billion euro business. It's a dairy business. It's the original business of Danone because people who don't know, Danone was actually founded in Spain, not in I France. I didn't know that. Yes, yes, yes. And the founder of Danone was, um, he had a son called Daniel and Dan won, oh, won right. Danone. So Danone. With launching what product? What yeah. was the first ever? Yogurt. It was yogurt. Yogurt, wow. yeah. And where in Spain, do you know? Where Barcelona. Oh, Barcelona? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Great bit of trivia for my French yeah. friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to know that. I'm going to love calling them out. 
Right, okay. Sorry. And um, we had an internal measurement system for sort of doing the right thing. And Danone Spain had always been our best, so we decided to start there. And we found this was a really impressive certification. It was tough, but it was fair. It forced you to ask some really hard questions and it had the right feel for us. It had the right, it had the right values, I guess, for Danone. So we were plodding along, going to take the next set of business units through the certification and I was going to stay in Paris and run. Um, Just as much of interest, the ones that you started with, did they all pass? Yes, but they took some time. I mean, some of them have been easier than... So what did you have to do to pass? Did you have to um, re-engineer your supply chain? Did you have to change your partnerships? And One of the things that's great about about B Corp certification is you, you do it yourself. You see what you find and most people overstate themselves. So they think they've got like a hundred points or whatever. And then you get actually audited by the company, by the organization, and you find out you're not quite as good as you you think. But then you discover that there are, you've left points on the table and you can have, you can get points from, I don't know, percentage of your business in renewable energy. You could get, you can get points for um, uh, having a a human rights policy if you didn't have one before. You can get points for uh, the percentage of your business that is paid at or above the living wage. And what we found is a couple of things. First is there's things that you know about yourselves that you're substandard on. So for example, percentage of renewable energy really shocked us in Danone because we we have factories all over the world and we didn't have nearly as much renewable energy as we imagined. But in order to get some of that renewable energy, you have to make capital investments and so on. So there's some sort of known things that you're leaving on the table. There are other things that you're simply not measuring. So for example, if you take the living wage, I didn't even know what the living wage was. I sure as hell wasn't measuring it. Country by country. And so, well, yes, well, in fact, I'm talking about in the US. Mm. So you might then choose to go back and actually measure something that you don't ordinarily measure, find out how you're doing and then get more points that way. So one of the things that I love about B Corp certification, and I'll come back to my personal journey in a minute, but is everybody's very generous in helping you to share ideas. So Patagonia helped us a lot because, you know, we had in North America, when we finally got here, we had, we got 81 points. We were really pleased with ourselves. Patagonia had 152, yeah, you know, about that. so that's, uh, there's a big difference. So they taught, they shared their ideas and thoughts and their way of operating but with us. they were us. at it long before you Sure. B Corp was a concept. Sure, sure. And uh, yes, and so they were kind of born B, let's call it. And I, I love the guys who are born B. There are lots of born B companies in this in this space, but I'm personally much more touched by those of us who who have to change. You're you wanna know? Be. Yeah, we're wannabes. Yeah. Exactly. That's nice. <laughs> wannabes and then get a bees, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so so we were kind of plodding along in Europe, but then the sort of unexpected thing happened, which is how it works in real life. And I, and I want to go down that path because it's an important part of this. So so there I am in Paris thinking, well, you know, we're going to carry on doing this thing. Paris is good. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely place to live. I've lived there a few times. And, um, and then my boss uh, and the company decided to buy White Wave. And White Wave is a huge, you know, $3 billion business here in the US. Silk, so delicious, Earthbound Farm, Horizon Milk, a lot of brands that many people listening to this podcast would know. And so I remember the day when when the boss called me up and said, I think it would be great if you go back to the US. And, and you're like, oh no. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, said, this, this I just what, did my last tax return. What was this? This was 2016? This is 2016. Uh, yeah. So before the election? Yeah. 
All right. So you still had a little bit of hope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going uh, okay, there. No, Mark. I'll go there. No. Okay. So, yeah, so it was 2016. So 2000, you're, you're on your way back. So 2016. And he said, go back. Let us put North American Dannon together with uh, White Wave. Let's create a legal entity, Public Benefit Corporation, which is really the new corporate form for uh, appropriate businesses. And let's go for B Corp certification. So I was like, okay, boss, you know, this has been my life, right? If the if if I get sent, I get sent. So I moved back here at the beginning of 2017. And we did exactly that. So we created a legal entity, which is a public benefit corporation, which declares that its, uh, its purpose is much more than just meeting shareholders' needs, but it's um, we're taking, we, we said that we were taking responsibility for the health of the planet and the people on the planet. How did that go down with shareholders as a matter of interest? Well, you know, the whole question of shareholder reaction is a subject in itself. And I think it's fair to say that shareholders have been um, kept incredibly well informed by Faber, uh, or Faber as some people in America call him, because he has managed to constantly reframe the conversation. And I think that you'll see good CEOs are constantly doing that now. That if you think that your business is just about delivering the numbers, well, that's all you talk about in your results presentations. But you know, I was with uh, Emmanuel just a little while ago and he'd just come out of a results presentation and he hadn't even been asked one question about the numbers. He'd been asked questions about B Corp certification, about his alignment with the sustainable development goals, about what he's doing with One Planet, One Health, about what he's doing with one share for every person in the company. So uh, I think he has done a great job of keeping his shareholders in, in, informed. There's no doubt that that he's brought in different kinds of shareholders over the years as well. I mean, there are certain kind of shareholders, particularly pension funds, who are saying, I don't want to invest in companies that don't have the right profile. And it's a, an incredible tension because on the one hand, everybody says, I want to you know, invest in a company that's doing the right thing. And then on the other hand, people are demanding and short-termist when it comes to their own money. Yeah. And that's the tension that we all live with, right? If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.